You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to the 400th episode of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all, welcome to the podcast. As you guys will recall, when we left off last time, it was the afternoon of Saturday, September 19th, 1863, the second day of the Battle of Chickamauga. And on the Confederate side, Cheatham's three leading brigades, commanded by Jackson, Smith, and Wright, were engaged with, or about to be engaged with, two full federal divisions, those of Johnson and Palmer. As we talked about last time, Jackson's initial success in pushing back Croxton's brigade of federals from Brannan's division had ground to a halt when Croxton dug in his heels after pulling back several hundred yards. Then it was Jackson's turn to start a slow retreat when Willock's brigade of Yankees from Johnson's division entered the fight. Jackson's Confederates fell back until their left came alongside the right flank of Smith's brigade near the northeastern edge of Brock Field. Once the two rebel brigades linked up, they settled in and began a steady exchange of fire with the Yankees who were opposite them. On the Federal side, on Willock's left, the 1st Ohio and 5th Kentucky U.S. exchanged musketry with the Mississippians and Georgians holding down Jackson's right. Private Levi Wagner of the 1st Ohio later recalled, quote, We advanced some distance through the heavy timber, driving the rebel skirmish line as we advanced, until our regiment came up to a rail fence with an open field to our front. The enemy were in heavy force beyond this field. Wagner went on to say that the Federals, quote, halted at this fence, and as the two lines were in good shooting distance, they promptly opened fire, end quote. A similar scene played out to the right of Willick, where the brigades of Hazen and Brigadier General Charles Cruft, both from Palmer's division, engaged the rebels. But while Willick's and Hazen's lines ran generally north-south, facing east, because of Palmer's and Echelon advance, Cruft's line ran more east-west, facing south, angled to cover the other leg of the L in the L-shaped Brock Field. With Jackson and Smith slugging it out with the Yankees in and around Brock Field, That meant two of Cheatham's three leading brigades had been stymied. 
However, Frank Cheatham still harbored hopes of finding a federal flank to turn. Those hopes now were pinned on his 3rd Leading Brigade, led by Brigadier General Marcus Wright, which was still advancing unopposed through the woods on Cheatham's left, just to the west of Brock Field. The 32-year-old Wright was given command of the brigade in January 1863, after Brigadier General Daniel Donaldson resigned for health reasons. The officers of the brigade had expected the command would be passed to one of their own, most likely Colonel John Savage of the 16th Tennessee. However, Cheatham instead promoted Wright, who had previously served on his staff. Savage resigned in protest, and resentment toward Wright still lingered within the ranks of the brigade. In addition to those internal troubles, Wright, here at Chickamauga, was confused about the deployment of the rest of Cheatham's division. Wright's five Tennessee regiments moved through the woods just to the west of Brock Field. Marcus Wright mistakenly believed Cheatham's two remaining brigades— commanded by Strahl and Manny, would be coming up on his left. That meant as Wright advanced, he thought he was going to be in the center of Cheatham's divisional line, when in reality, his brigade was on Cheatham's left flank. Of the moment they ran into the Yankees, Lieutenant Carol Clark of the 16th Tennessee would write, quote, Advancing through the woods, Jim Martin said, Yonder they are! And Colonel Donnell said, don't shoot, they are our men. But Jim said, our men hell, and bang went his gun. Regiment by regiment, Wright's Tennesseans became engaged, first against the right of Cruft's line, then against Colonel William Gross's brigade of Federals, which had been bringing up Palmer's rear. As the fight developed, Wright's line stretched several hundred yards facing generally north so that his brigade was at roughly a right angle to Smith's and Jackson's commands to his right. By the time Wright's brigade came up and engaged troops from Palmer's division of Federals, Jackson's and Smith's brigades of Confederates were beginning to feel overmatched in the fight in and around Brock Field. Smith's Tennesseans made an effort to push the Yankees back by advancing across Brock Field, but as the rebels moved forward, their line fragmented and the individual regiments found themselves fighting more or less on their own. Smith soon realized it was foolish to continue attacking the Yankees across open ground, and ordered his brigade to fall back to the southern and eastern edges of the field, where his men took cover behind a rail fence. After fighting from behind its protection for a short time, the Tennesseans' ammunition began to run low. About 1.30, Preston Smith sent word to Cheatham that his brigade was nearly out of ammo and needed relieved, but that he could hold his present position until new troops came up. In response, Cheatham ordered his 4th Brigade, commanded by Brigadier General Otho Strahl, to move up and replace Smith's men in the front line, but told Strahl to, quote, make no attempt to advance. Cheatham also ordered his 5th Brigade, commanded by Brigadier General George Manny, to move up and replace Jackson's men on Smith's right, 
since by that time Jackson's troops were also beginning to run low on ammo. So now, with Strahl's and Manny's brigades entering the fight, Cheatham's division was fully engaged. But instead of attacking an exposed federal flank as he'd expected, Frank Cheatham found himself struggling just to maintain a cohesive line of battle in and around Brock Field. The switching of brigades also didn't go as smoothly as Cheatham had hoped. Strahl's men moved up and replaced Smith's troops, but then, contrary to Cheatham's orders, Strahl advanced his men out into Brock Field. Strahl eventually pulled back to the fence line recently vacated by Smith's troops, but not before his brigade had suffered heavy losses. And then, although Cheatham tried to coordinate the operation, Smith's withdrawal caught Jackson off guard. Jackson would report, quote, Seeing troops on the left retiring, I sent to inquire the meaning of it. End quote. When he found out that Smith's brigade was being relieved and pulling back, Jackson asked Manny to come forward quickly before his own brigade ran out of ammunition. Private Sam Watkins of the 1st Tennessee in Manny's brigade remembered the moment. Quote, Even then the spent balls were falling amongst us with that peculiar fud, thud so familiar to your old soldier. We moved through the woods, firing as we marched, the Yankee line about 200 yards off. Bang, bang, sizz, sizz. It was a sort of running fire. In 10 minutes, we were face to face with the foe. Behind Sam Watkins and his comrades in Manny's brigade, Jackson's men fell back through the trees and joined Smith's troops in catching their breath and filling their cartridge boxes. With that, Cheatham's division had at least managed to halt the advance of Johnson's and Palmer's Federals, who, if they had been left unchecked, might have steamrolled forward and crushed Walker's battered command. But if Braxton Bragg was expecting that feeding Cheatham's large division into the fight would turn the tide of battle on the northern part of the field, he was disappointed because, frustratingly for the Confederates, for every man they sent into action, they seemed to find two Yankees. While Manny and Straw were attempting to stabilize the Confederate line at Brock Field, just to their left, Marcus Wright's left flank remained completely up in the air. The 38th Tennessee and Captain William Carnes' four-gun battery held the far left of Wright's line. They were taken by surprise when Yankees suddenly appeared to their left and rear. You see, unknown to Wright, two brigades of Federals from Brigadier General Horatio Van Cleve's 21st Corps Division were moving to turn his vulnerable left flank. That's because when he learned that Palmer's 21st Corps Division was heavily engaged near Brock Field, Corps Commander Thomas Crittenden had ordered Van Cleve to move north along the Lafayette Road with two of his brigades. Leaving behind the brigade of Colonel Sidney Barnes as part of the dwindling force guarding Lee and Gordon's mills, Van Cleve quickly marched his other two brigades, led by Brigadier General Samuel Beatty and Colonel George Dick, 
north up the Lafayette Road to Brotherton Field. There, following the pattern the Federals had pursued all day, Van Cleve faced his men to the right and advanced into the woods east of the road. That meant they were in a perfect position to turn Wright's vulnerable left flank. Lieutenant Marcus Woodcock in the 9th Kentucky U.S. in Beatty's Brigade remembered the moment he entered the fight. Quote, We were almost completely exhausted by the long run we had been compelled to make, nearly two miles. Our brigade fronted a regiment at a time. Those that fronted first commencing a musketry fight with the enemy, and then the whole brigade made a general charge. The Federals charged forward with Beatty on the left and Dick on the right. Ahead of them, Carnes' battery and the 38th Tennessee bore the brunt of the attack, but had very little time to prepare for it. Carnes reported, quote, giving the enemy double charges of canister at close range, end quote. But at the same time, Federal musketry was cutting down his artillerymen. When the men of the 38th Tennessee gave way and fled, Carnes was left without infantry support, and the battery was doomed. He ordered his gunners to abandon their pieces and save themselves. With Van Cleve's Federals rolling forward, Cheatham's left was in trouble, but help was on the way. You see, shortly after sending Cheatham north, Braxton Bragg decided to feed yet another formation into the fight. He chose Major General Alexander Stewart's 3 Brigade Division from Simon Bolivar Buckner's Corps. Stewart's three brigades, led by Brigadier Generals William Bate, John Brown, and Henry Clayton, had crossed the Chickamauga that morning and were positioned on Buckner's right, near the Park House, with Hood's troops massed to their right. Now, Bragg, worried by the continually escalating fight on the northern part of the battlefield, decided that Buckner could spare Stewart's division and around noon he ordered Stewart to, quote, move to a point where the firing had commenced, a considerable distance to the right and rear. Alexander Stewart was uneasy about the extremely vague nature of those instructions, so he rode over to Bragg to seek clarification. However, the Confederate commander couldn't offer much more in the way of specifics, only telling Stewart that Walker had been engaged Cheatham had been sent north, and now Stuart would take his three brigades toward the sound of the guns and, quote, be governed by circumstances. So, with that, Stuart pulled his men out of line, passed behind Hood's troops, and marched north through the woods southeast of Brock Field. It wasn't long before one of Wright's aides found Stuart and filled him in on the nature of the unfolding crisis on Cheatham's left. Now, with a better understanding of the situation, Stuart advanced to the northwest, with his three brigades stacked one behind the other, with Clayton leading the way, followed by Brown, while Bate brought up the rear. With Wright's brigade being suddenly and unexpectedly attacked by Van Cleve's Federals, that meant Cheatham's left was in danger of being turned. And meanwhile, his center and right, that is the brigades of Strahl and Manny, were also coming under increasing pressure in and around Brock Field. 
On Cheatham's right, Manny's 1,300 Tennesseans, attempting to hold their position in the woods just north of Brock Field, faced double their number of Yankees in Willick's and Baldwin's brigades from Johnson's division. And then Strahl's brigade had its hands full also, holding down the center of Cheatham's line at Brock Field, but its situation was about to get much worse as fresh Federals appeared to assault its position. On the Federal side, on Willick's right, the men of Hazen's brigade were running low on ammunition after their extended firefight with, first, Smith's brigade of rebels, and then with Strahl's brigade when it moved up to relieve Smith. But fortunately for Hazen, help was on the way. First to arrive were two regiments, the 18th Kentucky, U.S., and 92nd Ohio, from Brigadier General John Turchin's brigade, from Reynolds' division, and George Thomas's 14th Corps. Thomas was still holding Reynolds back along the Lafayette Road near Kelly Field, but as the fight heated up at Brock Field, Reynolds plucked the 18th Kentucky and 92nd Ohio out of Turchin's brigade and sent them forward to help out. When they appeared behind Hazen, he moved them up into his front line to replace some of his troops his, whose cartridge boxes were almost empty. More help was on the way because when Johnson heard that Hazen was running low on ammo, he sent over Dodge's brigade, which he had been holding in reserve and wasn't needed on his own divisional front, since Willick and Baldwin had matters well in hand. Dodge later remembered it had been relatively quiet as his men waited in reserve. Quote, but off to our right, it was evidently red hot. End quote. Well, once he got the order to move over to the right, where the action was red hot, Joseph Dodge moved his four regiments of Pennsylvania, Illinois, and Indiana troops quickly, moving them through Hazen's line and charged across Brock Field towards Strahl's Tennesseans. As Dodge's 1,100 Federals charged across Brock Field, the weight of their attack fell primarily against the 19th Tennessee, Strahl's rightmost regiment. As the 19th started to give way, August Willick, to Dodge's left, decided the time was ripe for his brigade to advance again. The former Prussian officer, besides being a socialist and intellectual, was also something of a tactical innovator. Because, as far as August Willick was concerned, the standard two-rank regimental line of battle was inadequate in most combat situations. So, he developed a system he called Advance Fire. He trained the men in his brigade so that each regiment formed in four ranks instead of two, the front rank would advance a few steps and fire, then reload while the next rank passed through it to do the same, and so on in turn with all four ranks. Then, lather, rinse, repeat. The result was a rolling wall of fire that allowed the units to advance, or, if carried out in reverse, to fall back with equal ease. Willick used his tactical innovation here at Chickamauga, and the results were impressive. On the Confederate side, Manny's brigade soon found itself in trouble. With Dodge's Federals to his left driving a wedge between him and Strahl, 
and menaced by Willock's determined advance against his own front, George Manny could no longer hold his ground. In addition to the threats from Dodge and Willock to his left and center, Manny also had to contend with the other brigade from Johnson's division, Baldwin's, threatening his right. Manny's right, near Winfrey Field, was the far northern end of the Confederate line of battle, and only a skirmish line of rebel cavalry screened his vulnerable flank. When Baldwin's Yankees advanced, along with Willick's men to their right, Baldwin's line of battle overlapped Manny's, and the skirmish line of rebel cavalry wasn't enough to stop the Yankees from turning Manny's right flank. The 1st and the 27th Tennessee were on the right end of Manny's brigade line. Sam Watkins of the 1st Tennessee remembered seeing Nathan Bedford Forrest ride up at the height of the crisis and yell to Colonel Hume Field, the regimental commander, Colonel Field, look out, you are almost surrounded. Watkins went on to say, the order was given to retreat. I ran through a solid line of bluecoats as I fell back. After driving back the rebels of Manny's brigade some distance, Johnson halted Willick's and Baldwin's advance, since he was concerned there were no friendly troops to his left. You see, just like Manny's brigade was at the far northern end of the Confederate line, Johnson was at the far northern end of the Federal line, and his left flank was up in the air. And so, not wanting to overextend himself, Johnson contented himself with having driven back Manny's Tennesseans, and he ordered Willick and Baldwin to fall back to their original positions. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. About the same time on the afternoon of the 19th that Willicks and Baldwin's brigades of Federals were driving off Manny's Tennesseans north of Brock Field, Stewart's division of Confederates was entering the fight, just to the southwest of Brock Field. The 41-year-old Stewart was a West Point graduate 
although he only served three years in the antebellum U.S. Army before resigning his commission to become a college professor. Although not in favor of secession, when Tennessee left the Union, he volunteered his services and proved himself a capable brigadier. Back in June, Stewart's newly created division shouldered the brunt of the attack by Wilder's Lightning Brigade at Hoover's Gap during the Tullahoma Campaign. Here at Chickamauga, A.P. Stewart intended to enter the battle in a more controlled manner than Cheatham, who had rather haphazardly fed his division into the fighting. As we mentioned previously, Stewart advanced through the woods just to the southwest of Brock Field, with his three brigades stacked one behind the other. Clayton's large Alabama brigade led Stewart's division into action, pushing through Wright's Tennesseans as they fled from Van Cleve's Federals. An officer in the 38th Alabama wrote, quote, The woods was full of stragglers and skulkers and wounded. Whole companies, regiments, and brigades seemed scattered to the winds. The fugitives told the wildest tales of flight and massacre of regiments, and brigades cut all to pieces. Despite having only three regiments, Clayton's command numbered just over 1,400 men, and so was the largest brigade in Stuart's division, but it was also the least experienced. The 18th Alabama saw action at Shiloh, but the 36th and 38th Alabama were garrison troops from Mobile and had yet to fire a shot in anger. As Clayton went forward, Stuart passed along Bragg's advice, vague as it was. Henry Clayton later said that after talking to Stuart, he understood that, quote, After having more definitely located the enemy, I would have to act for myself and be governed by circumstances. Corporal Edgar Jones, marching in the ranks of Clayton's Center Regiment, the 18th Alabama, later recalled, quote, Standing in line, the firing began seemingly without any command, and in three minutes the engagement was something awful. The slaughter was dreadful. We discovered that we were within perhaps 50 yards of the enemy's line. Despite being thrown directly from the frying pan into the fire, Clayton's Alabamans, by sheer weight of numbers, made some initial headway, driving back the front line of both Beatty's and Dick's brigades of Federals. Then, however, the rebels hit the second line of Yankee regiments, and there both Beatty's and Dick's brigades held firm. A fierce firefight developed as the soldiers on both sides stood within a stone's throw of each other, firing and loading as quickly as possible. The inexperienced Alabamans were receiving the worst of it, but they nevertheless returned the federal fire as best they could until they began to run low on ammunition. Realizing he needed to disengage so his men could pull back and refill their cartridge boxes, Clayton sent a message to Stuart informing him of his brigade's dilemma. Clayton's courier found Stuart with Brigadier General John C. Brown, a Tennessee lawyer and by 1863 a veteran brigade commander. His men had moved up behind Clayton's Alabamans so closely 
that Brown reported taking casualties while holding his position behind Clayton's line. Now, with Clayton's brigade needing to pull back, Stewart ordered Brown's Tennesseans to move up and relieve them. Corporal Thomas Korn, a member of the 32nd Tennessee in the center of Brown's line, wrote that, quote, The battle was now on in dead earnest, and it was like a cyclone of fire. Besides the storm of musketry, the woods were now on fire in many spots, and that smoke, combined with the powder smoke hanging in the air, made it difficult to see far in any direction. Private Noah Hampton of the 18th Tennessee recalled the visibility was so poor that, quote, we could not distinguish the enemy from our own men ten steps away. As Brown's Tennesseans surged forward, Beatty's and Dick's Federals recoiled in the face of the onslaught, but after falling back a short distance, the Yankees rallied and stood firm. However, while they were withdrawing, Corporal James Stewart, bearing the 75th Indiana state flag, took a wound in the right hip. A member of the regiment recalled, quote, As he fell, Color Sergeant Jacob Lair, the bearer of the Stars and Stripes of the regiment, seized the battle flag up also, and being a muscular man, carried both flags for the moment in his hands, and Corporal Stewart on his back. In a few minutes, a mini-ball pierced the body of Corporal Stewart immediately under his armpits as he hung bleeding and wounded upon the back of the color sergeant. The shot killed the corporal. As the Yankees rallied and stood firm, and as the advance of Brown's Tennesseans stalled, Stewart decided to pull them back and send in his last brigade. He sent word to William Bate to move up and engage the Yankees. Bates' brigade was a mixed bag of Alabamans, Tennesseans, and Georgians, but they were all veterans, and now, with a shout, they rushed forward through the woods toward the battered Federal line. The howling wave of rebels struck the Federal line, quote, with the fury of a tornado, according to Lieutenant Marcus Woodcock of the 9th Kentucky. Having already been pushed to the edge of breaking by the previous Confederate attacks, this determined assault by Bates' brigade was more than Van Cleve's Yankees could stand, and Beatty's and Dick's men fled for the rear with the rebels in hot pursuit. With the Federal line in front of him having shattered like glass, Stuart now ordered Clayton's brigade back into action. The Alabamans moved forward quickly, joining Bates' men as they rushed west through the woods toward the Lafayette Road. As the Confederates neared the road, Bates' line split, with two of his regiments, along with Clayton's men, pushing westward across the Lafayette Road into Brotherton Field, while Bates himself, along with the 37th Georgia, 20th Tennessee, and the 4th Georgia sharpshooters, wheeled to the right. Bates soon came to the edge of Poe Field and saw that all along the north end of the field stretched a long line of enemy cannon, here was danger, but also temptation, because if he could capture such a prize, he and his brigade would be covered in glory. And so, without hesitation, William Bate ordered his men forward.
When Hazen's brigade of Federals had been pulled out of the Brock Field line, it had moved back to the Lafayette Road around the Poe farmstead. There, Hazen's men filled their cartridge boxes and caught their breath. However, as the noise of battle increased to the south, William Hazen formed up his brigade and moved southward toward the sound of the guns. He soon came upon Horatio Van Cleve, who was, according to Hazen, quote, riding wildly up the road with tears running down his cheeks, asked if I had any troops as they were wanted badly just down there, pointing in the direction I was going, saying there was not a moment to spare. Hazen's troops quickly engaged Clayton's brigade of rebels and the attached part of Bates' brigade that had advanced west across the Lafayette Road at Brotherton Field. Meanwhile, William Bate and the rest of his brigade were just then making their right turn into Poe Field and discovering the long line of Federal artillery pieces. Of that moment, Hazen would say, quote, There were four batteries, which I had been charged to look after. To get these in position to take the enemy's line under fire when it should uncover from the wood was scarcely the work of a moment. And so, as Hazen repositioned the 24 cannon along the northern edge of Poe Field, Bates' Confederates emerged from the woods on the southeast side of the field. Bates ordered his men to charge, and the Union cannon opened fire. A young topographical engineer on Hazen's staff, 21-year-old Lieutenant Ambrose Bierce, watched the scene as it unfolded. In the evocative style that would become a hallmark of his later literary fame, he would say, quote, The field was gray with Confederates in pursuit. Then the guns opened fire with grape and canister, and for perhaps five minutes, it seemed like an hour, nothing could be heard but the infernal din of their discharge, and nothing seen through the smoke but a great ascension of dust from the smitten soil. When all was over and the dust cloud lifted, the spectacle was too dreadful to describe. The Confederates were still there, all of them it seemed, some almost under the muzzles of the guns, but not a man of all these brave fellows was on his feet, and so thickly were all covered with dust that they looked as if they had been reclothed in yellow. The Federal artillery fire was devastating, one member of the 20th Tennessee who survived the doomed charge recalled, quote, Double charge after double charge of canister plowed through our ranks. The 20th carried into action 140 men and lost killed and wounded 98. How any human being could live through such a conflict, the good Lord only can tell. William Bate would later report that he lost at least a quarter of the men who went with him into Poe Field. With his men having paid in blood for his foolhardy decision to charge a line of two dozen enemy cannon, Bate now pulled the survivors back to the cover of the woods from which they'd advanced. Meanwhile, the Confederate thrust across the Lafayette Road led by Henry Clayton also came to naught. Those rebels pushed across the road, driving westward through the Brotherton Field and the trees that lined its far edge and into the large dire field beyond. But there, without support and finding himself threatened by Hazen's Federals coming down from the north, 
Clayton decided discretion was the better part of valor, and he ordered his men to withdraw and fall back across the Lafayette Road. There they halted and reformed after linking up with Bates' troops after their failed attack on the Union guns in Poe Field. Stewart's successive hammer blows by Clayton's brigade, Brown's brigade, and then Bates' brigade had finally broken through the federal line and reached the Lafayette Road. But without support, Stewart was unable to capitalize on his breakthrough. He was without support because the Confederate efforts here on the northern part of the battlefield on the 19th had been haphazard, uncoordinated affairs. That's because once the fighting started to escalate in intensity, Braxton Bragg was merely reacting to the changing circumstances, and so had fed troops into the battle piecemeal. On the federal side, William Rosecrans had found himself in much the same situation as Bragg, that is, reacting to circumstances, which in his case took the form of his decision to move more and more troops north to reinforce George Thomas, until eventually Thomas was leading units from all three of the Army's corps in the fighting on the northern part of the battlefield. However, a lull will now settle over that sector, as the fierce back-and-forth combat on that part of the field has finally played itself out. And as we'll see next time, the battle's center of gravity will now shift south to the vicinity of the Vineyard Farmstead, where fresh forces federal and confederate, are going to collide on the afternoon of the 19th and continue the slugging match between the two armies. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Shadows of Blue and Gray, The Civil War Writings of Ambrose Bierce. In this episode, we mentioned Ambrose Bierce, who was a Union soldier in the Civil War, but who went on to become a famous author and newspaper reporter. Uh, Just a warning, his style isn't for everyone, but if you're interested in looking into Bierce's writings, this book is a mix of his short stories, along with some of his reporting and memoirs. In this episode, we also mentioned Private Sam Watkins, a Confederate soldier from Tennessee, and some of you might recognize his name, so we thought we'd re-recommend Sam Watkins' excellent Company H, or a sideshow of The Big Show, a memoir of the Civil War. So there you go, two book recommendations for this episode from two participants at the Battle of Chickamauga, one Confederate and one Federal. You can find a list of all our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. And then, as we like to do at the end of an episode, we want to thank the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade for their support of the podcast. So thanks to John S., Richard J., and Michael K. And thanks to Aaron S. for his donation. Then, just a reminder that the music you hear at the beginning and end of each episode is from the song Midnight on the Water, and we use it with the kind permission of Spiritwood Music. And as we do every year at this time, we'll remind you that Spiritwood Music has some lovely holiday music, 
which as Christmas draws near, we like to have on in the background as we're puttering around the house. You can find those songs pretty much anywhere you usually get your music. Just search for Spiritwood Music and it should pop up. Well, thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you'll join us again next time as we continue with the story of the Battle of Chickamauga. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.